Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the seventh Psalm. You'll find that on page 450 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. And we are, as typical of us on Sunday mornings, we're going to be working verse by verse through this passage of Scripture before us this morning. So I do think you'll be aided to have God's Word open in your lap during our time together there in Psalm 7. We're finishing up our our little summer series in the Psalms, the first seven Psalms uh, as we've been working through this summer. And uh, beginning next week, God willing, we're going to start the book of Titus and work through the book of Titus in the fall. And I'm excited to do that. And in fact, uh, as I've shared with you, and perhaps you're getting tired of me sharing it, that, that these Psalms have been in particularly challenging to me. Sometimes when I, well, every time I preach a passage, I take the passage and I, I outline it. I, I do a structural diagram and Sometimes the, the sermon just leaps off the page for me. Within five minutes, I, I see the outline of the sermon just by considering the text. Well, I'm coming to these psalms, and uh, uh, I find like they're throwing me on my back, and, and uh, we're wrestling together, and I'm usually losing. So um, God will bless us, I trust, and uh, it's been my, my hope and my prayer that uh, these, this time in the psalms would not only impact how we pray to the Lord, but in particular impact individuals in the church. And I think there's somebody here, and maybe more, that need to hear Psalm 7 today. And so I trust God will bless our time together, won't he? And so here we are, Psalm 7. Hear now the word of God. A shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Kosh, the Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my enemy with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him, let him trample my life to the ground. And lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. And a judge who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord 
the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, even when it is somewhat challenging, challenging to understand. And even when it's clear, it can be challenging, can it, Father? As I think some of these verses will be challenging in light of the modern culture in which we live in. It seems somewhat antiquated. Maybe even some here would consider it primitive. And yet we, your people, gather here because we believe it's true, every word of it. We believe it to be the very word of God, or as David said, the Lord Most High. And so we come because we want to hear from you. We even pray now, I hope, that you would speak to us. And everyone here who claims the name of Christ, that they would even pray in their own hearts, Lord, let me hear you today. That away with this man, this preacher, and let the voice of God be heard through his scripture. That's our hope and our desire. So speak to us through your spirit and your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was on July 16 in 1997 when two girls disappeared from a mall in the Philippines. Shortly thereafter, a 19-year-old young man by the name of Paco Lariega was arrested, put on trial, and was convicted of double murder. The problem with all that was that at the time of the crime, Paco was 350 miles away. In fact, he was on another island at school. In fact, he had 35 classmates and his teacher that testified that Paco was with them during that night and the next day. They even had pictures on their phones capturing their their testimony. And moreover, there was even a security log from the security camera and Paco's apartment that showed he was hundreds of miles away from the crime. Nevertheless, he was tried and convicted in a trial that the judge repeatedly fell asleep during. It just so happens that the father of the girls worked for a drug lord. And the drug lord was known for paying off police, paying off judges. And I'm sure this kind of story can be repeated over and over and over again. We call this injustice. And when we encounter injustice, and I believe it's probably perhaps the image of God in us, when we encounter injustice, it grates against us. There's something in us that cries out, that's not right. Well, Psalm 7 is a psalm about justice, or perhaps more specifically about injustice. We see here that evidently there are a a false accusation being um, lobbied against King David from a man named Cush. You look at the heading there in Psalm 7, and and I remind you just briefly that these headings in the the Psalms, though they're not given a verse number, are part of the scripture. And so it says, Shigeon uh, of David. We don't know what that means. You see that footnote you probably have in your Bible. It's a reference to a musical term. Its exact meaning has been lost on us. But what's more interesting for our purposes is the historical note that we read. It says, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, that's interesting because we know that David and the tribe of Benjamin had their troubles. You remember, of course, that it was David's successor, King Saul, 
or a predecessor, I should say, King Saul was a Benjamite. And, and as Saul's hatred for David grew, he would actually rally the tribe of Benjamin against David. We, we, in modern terms, we would call Benjamin his base, right? These are his core supporters. In fact, Saul would say, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's of course referring to David, give every one of you fields and vineyards, will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? So he's kind of rallying his, his people against, King, uh, against David at this point. In fact, after Saul's death, if you read the account of David, you'll, you'll actually discover that there was a civil war in Israel, right? And for seven years, David was un- unable to rule over all of Israel because of this, this civil war led by the tribe of Benjamin in opposition to David. And finally, David would, would, would begin to reign in Jerusalem and reign over all Israel after that, that civil war was put down. But that didn't, it didn't end then. If, I, it's some time ago. We remember we were in Psalm 3, and Psalm 3 was written on the occasion of David's son, Absalom, leading a revolt against David. And David had to flee throughout the night. And remember why David was fleeing from Jerusalem. Do you remember that foul-mouthed character named Shimei who all the way cursed David and his troops and pelted them with rocks and kissed, kicked dirt on them? Remember that Shimei, was a Benjamite, wasn't he? In fact, he cried out, the Lord has repaid you, David, for all the blood you have shed on the household of Saul, Saul in whose place you have reigned. And, and, and so, of course, there's another Benjamite against David. Well, David, of course, that, that rebellion will end. David will regain his throne. But if you read David's account, that was not the last of his troubles. By far, there was shortly thereafter another revolt, rebellion against David, led by a man named Sheba, who happened to be, you guessed it, a Benjamite. And so now, here we are in Psalm 7, and we see there's once again someone from the tribe of Benjamin opposing David. This man is named Cush, and he's a man we know nothing about apart from Psalm 7. So we find him in no historical records in Scripture. But what we do know is that he is accusing David of what David claims he did not do. And so in light of these accusations, David is praying for justice. And, and I think that, I hope, should resonate with us. Because we, we root, especially in our culture, we root for justice. I mean, just turn on the television in prime time. And it seems like every other show on TV is about justice, isn't it? You have law and order, right? And you got law and order criminal intent and law and order special victims unit and law and order mall security, right? <laughs> you, you have, you got CIS and NCIS and NYPD and right? You have all the legal shows. I don't even know, Boston Legal and all, all the rest. You have all these legal shows. I mean, it's just, all, all we are, we're very interested evidently in, in, in law and order. I mean, that's how we entertain ourselves. And if you dare, you, you turn on the television during the daytime, which I would recommend you not do. But, but if you do, you, what you'll find, what is it, is judging Amy? Is that something? I don't know. I just, um, you got uh, Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown. And of course, I grew up um, under the, the tutelage of Judge Wapner, right? And uh, the People's Court. And, and so we have all these actually judge shows. We, in fact, if, if you, your, your child grew up, your son or daughter grew up and they became a judge, we would think, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, they get to wear a you know, dress and they have a hammer and all sorts of, you know, everybody rises when they enter into a room. And that's a kind of a noble profession, we think. And, and so we all kind of think very highly of judges, don't we? Unless we're talking about God. You start talking about God as a judge. And for some reason, the idea of a judge being noble and good doesn't apply. We don't like that idea at all in our culture. God, a judge, it's very unappealing. 
People, people don't want a God who would judge us. We want a God of love, as if a judge can't be loving. And what we really want is, I think, at the heart of it, is not, not so much God not to be a judge. We just don't want to be accountable to him. We don't want to be judged. And, of course, we know if God is a judge, then his judgment's coming our way. It was Aldous Huxley, the brilliant author and philosopher in the 1920s, who set his entire intellect towards one goal and, and to getting rid of organized religion. And he was asked why. Why do, why do you oppose religion so much? And I, I appreciate his honesty. He said, I, didn't, I said, I don't want the universe to have meaning because I want to sleep with whoever I want. That's interesting, isn't it? Right? I, I don't want accountability. This is why I'm, my, I'm using all my intellectual might against this. It's not, a, not because I have an intellectual pursuit, but because I don't want to answer to anyone. I want to do whatever I want to do, and I don't want anyone to judge me. So I don't want there to be a God. Well, so David has another opinion, doesn't he? Uh, he believes in God, as you see here in Psalm 7, I think. And he even believes that God is a judge who's interested in justice, especially in David's life. That's so that raises the question for us, I think, is what can you do when you face injustice? Have you ever been in that situation? you ever face false accusations, for instance? Well, it probably will be no surprise to you that my answer to that question in light of these psalms is, at the very least, bring it to God, right? Because above us is a righteous judge, and we, we must learn to bring our case to him as David does in fact, it seems to me that one way to consider Psalm 7 is to see five different steps that David employs in seeking justice. He begins by calling for protection. First of all, consider David's call for protection. You see in verse 1, he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. So David's saying, okay, my first instinct is to run to God Right? Maybe kind of the way you run to a basement in a tornado. I, 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 the, there's trouble around me. I'm, I'm going to flee to God. And God is going to be my refuge. He's going to be the one to protect me. Right? So I take refuge in his goodness and his strength and his faithfulness, God. I'm coming to you. And, and for why? Read on in verse 1. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So, so David is saying, okay, God, I'm coming to you because you are the one who can deliver me from this. And by the way, that phrase, deliver me, is a phrase David would use elsewhere to talk about how he saved a lamb from the mouth of a lion. He said, I delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. And it may be that exact event that David has in mind, because notice the imagery he uses to describe the consequence if he's not delivered in verse 2. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So he says, listen, if, if, you, if you don't protect me, if you're, you're, not, you're not my savior, then these, these, these accusers, these false charges, they stand. It's going to lead to my death. And by the way, not a dignified death. It, it will be like a lamb being thrown in the midst of a, a hungry pride of lions. They will, they will attack me. They will doubt, devour me. Lord, he prays, if this injustice stands, it will be to my utter ruin. So he calls on God. It is good to learn to call on God in times of trouble. It is good to take our shelter in him. I think we all agree with that, but I'm not sure we all actually do it when difficulty arises. We come to God and call upon him. Now, by the way, that does not mean that's all we do. 
So we run to God for protection. That doesn't mean we're passive, right? When David's pursued by his enemies, you read his account, he either flees or he fights back in, in, in the middle of calling on God. As Israel is besieged by their enemies, as they rebuilt the wall, what do they do? They pray to God and they got swords, right? And so just because we seek God's refuge doesn't mean we stop working towards what we know to be right. But ultimately, despite all of our efforts, despite all the actions which we take to to fix what's wrong in our life, we must ultimately hope in God. I think this is what David is teaching us. Our ultimate hope is in the Lord and in his deliverance. If it is not, anxiety will churn your soul into a fretful mess. If it is not, if your hope is not in the Lord, you will lash out on your enemies. You'll be tempted to utter half-truths in response to them. If your hope is not in God, you will seek your own justice. You will perhaps even be led into committing the very sins that are done against you. And so we begin by taking refuge in God. We commit our case to his hand. And we find there in God a peace as he is our shelter even in the midst of our trouble. That's very helpful for us in difficulty and injustice to focus in on God. It was during World War II that a U.S. arms plant was producing defective bomb sites. And these planes were dropping their bombs, but they were not hitting their target. And many in the government suspected there was sabotage within that bomb plant until it was discovered it wasn't sabotage at all that the defects on the bomb siding actually arose because the employees were focusing so much on the, the minute pieces and parts uh, that, that they were building these sites that their eyes actually went out of focus. The solution was to give them repeated breaks so their eyes can rest and readjust. And then they found the sites to be right on target. I think that might be a helpful illustration for us is that in the midst of unpleasant and difficult times that we just don't simply focus upon the circumstances in our life. We need to rest our hearts in the refuge of God. We need to remind ourselves that we, we, as we seek justice, we believe God is working for our good. And so we call for God's protection. We're confident in God's care. At least David is because he knows he's innocent. You notice, secondly, what David does before the Lord is he claims his innocence. Look what he says in verse 3. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, right? So what he's doing there in verse 3 is you could kind of gather. It's like he's saying, I haven't done this, right? They're lying about me, God. I I haven't done what they've accused me of. In fact, we find out what they're accusing him of in verse 4. If I have repaid my friend with evil or plunder my enemy without cause. So there are two accusations, aren't there? That David has been evil against his friends and has treated his excuse me, evil, yes, evil against his friends and treated his enemies unfairly. And so Cush is coming to David and he's, he's accusing David of being treacherous, both the friend and foe. And I think it's probably, I mean, we don't have to imagine too, too hard to, to think about what type of accusations he might have said, right? You know, David, Saul took you into his house, treated you like a son, even gave you his daughter. And what do you do? In the first opportunity, you turn on him, right? You betray him, you steal his throne, you destroy his house, now, of course, we know David has many sins, don't we? David is far from a perfect person. But if there's, if there's one thing we know about David is that he is wonderfully kind to both, both his enemies and incredibly loyal to his friends. 
In fact, on several occasions, David had an opportunity to take Saul's life, and even when Saul was hunting down David, and David refused to do so. And so David, David's conscience is clear on these accusations, right? He has a guiltless conscience at this time. And sometimes, by the way, you can fool people into thinking that you're a victim, right? This, by the way, has happened to me more than once. I'm afraid to say, I wish I had gathered the wisdom to be able to see through these things. But people will come to you, well, don't they? Does this ever happen to you? And they lay out all the injustice that's been done against them. And, and it just sounds horrible and terrible. And, and, and your heart goes out to them. And you're filled with sympathy and support. And you even kind of share the outrage against the people that are doing all these wicked and nasty things to them. And it's only later that you find out, oh, there's another side to this story. Has that ever happened to you? It's quite frequently, I'm afraid, in my life. It almost at times we're like a football player, right? And we take that cheap shot just to get the other guy to retaliate. And the referee only sees the retaliation and you kind of play the victim, right? right? Well, you may be, uh, you can fool the ref sometimes, can't you? And you can fool your friends. But you can't fool God, right? He knows exactly what's true. And therefore, I, th- I find this incredibly stunning to me. This is startling how confident David is before God. In fact, he even calls judgment on himself if he's guilty. Look what he says in verse 5. So verse 3 and 4, if I've done this, if I've done this, if I've done this, if I've done this, then I think we can perhaps just for a moment insert the word then to begin verse 5. Then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life into the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah, he says. So David is so sure of his innocence that he calls down curses upon himself. If I've done these things, let them trample me. Trampling, by the way, is what happened when Jezebel was trampled by the horses into the dust. And David says, listen, if I've done these things, Lord, may I be run over by a herd of horses. May my memory rot in the ground if I am guilty of these charges. Let that happen to me. Now, we don't talk like that today, do we? I don't know if you've, uh, parents, if you ever sent your child off to clean their room. Of course you have, right? And, um, they come back three minutes later. <laughs> so it's, and and, and you, you know, of course, that um, the state of disrepair of their room is going to require far more than three minutes of effort. And so you ask them, has this ever happened to you? Well, honey, did you clean your room? And um, if they're anything like my children, sometimes we'll, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I clean my room. And you knowing what kind of scene through this, you, you, you might say to them, well, I'm not sure that you have, right? In fact, I don't believe that you did clean your room. And then your child, of course, responds, well, may the walls of this very house fall down upon me, right? <laughs> right? And the ceiling come crashing on my head if I am guilty of what you accuse me of, right? No, they don't say that. Like what usually happens? They usually kind of put their head down and turn back and they walk back to the room. It's like 99% of the time they're guilty of what you charge them with to some degree. But here's David. He's doing exactly that. Oh God, if I've done this, then you know, lay me down. Trample me into the dirt. I mean, he has a clear conscience. And a clear conscience, that's a wonderful shield. And so having established his innocence before the Lord, he now calls on God to act with justice, which I think is even more startling as you consider his third step is a cry for justice. David cries for justice as you see in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. 
awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you over its return on high. You see David asking God to act. Arise, O Lord, he says. Lift yourself up, O Lord. Awake, my God, he says. Because in the middle of, of, of people's lies about you, in the middle of trouble and turmoil, it might seem like God is asleep. Of course, he's not. Right? He never would fall asleep on you. But this is simply just David's dramatic way of asking God to act in this particular time for, for God to judge, right, for render verdict. Okay, you've heard the evidence. Now it's time for the gavel to fall and a verdict to be given. In fact, why, God, don't you begin with me? As you see in verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, verse 8, I think, is, is a very startling verse. I, don't, I mean, when is the last time you have ever prayed to God, judge me, O God, according to my righteousness? Right? I'm guessing never. This is startling, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that we, as New Testament Christians, we affirm that we've all sinned. We, we all agree, do we not, as Romans teaches us, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And even David, by the way, would affirm that. You get to Psalm 51, and it's David's psalm of repentance, and he will say against you, O Lord, you know this, have I sinned? Have I done evil in your sight? He even would say, I was sinful from my mother's birth. And so, but now here in verse 8 of Psalm 7, he says, judge me according to my righteousness. What's going on there? Well, this is why it's very, very helpful to study the Bible in context. In fact, I would say most false teachers, which we'll be considering in our study, the book of Titus, God willing, in the coming months, is a great warning of false teachers. They are all around us, and what they will do is they will take verses out of their context. And so we need to read, read the verses in the context in which God has given them. And so David, what's David talking about when he's talking about his righteousness? He's talking about the particular accusations done against him. So, for instance, when a defendant pleads... The judge says, okay, what's your verdict? And the defendant, or what, what do you plea, right? And the defendant says, not guilty, okay? They are not saying that they are completely without any guilt in any sphere of their life. They are simply saying they are innocent of the charges that have been brought against them. So David, when he says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, not claiming to have lived a perfectly righteous life. Only one has done that. He's simply affirming that he's innocent of these charges. I like how Alistair Begg explains his childhood in light of these truths. He says, as a young man, when he didn't get his schoolwork done on time, he was masterful at blaming others. He would say to his father, he said, yes, I know I failed to finish the assignment, but so-and-so was supposed to pass on this information, or, or these bullies grabbed my assignment, flushed it down the toilet, and, and there you have it. He said, whenever I would do this, my father would say to me, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Tomorrow, we are going to go down to the headmaster of that school and let him know what happened. And so how does he respond? He says, no, right? No, that's too much. Don't do that. Because he, he knew he wasn't the victim. Right? If, if, if he was guiltless, if he was righteous, what he would say is, yes, absolutely. In fact, let's go tonight. Let's cry out to him. Oh, headmaster, arise. Right? 
and render a verdict. I'm an innocent man. Render it against my enemies. But of course he didn't because he wasn't innocent. Well, David looks at himself and he sees no sin in his life. And therefore he says, okay, God judge me on this matter in particular according to, to my righteousness and my innocence. And then he calls for further justice in verse 9 as you see, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, oh, righteous God. You see, what David is rec- uh, understands is that God is the perfect judge. He, he, he knows the thoughts that no one else knows. He knows the heart. He knows the heart of all men. And so David says, search us, search us all, and give us justice. And I, again, I, I, <laughs> I, it was part of, part of my heart that cautions us once again. Because before you ask God to search your heart and render justice, I, I mean, you have to remember, he, he does know everything. You might, might, I think it's probably good to ask God for clarity in your role in the circumstance before you ask him to render a verdict. Or maybe even wise to seek a close friend who is willing to tell you what you don't want to hear. Because I, sometimes the accusations actually have some truth in it. And, and even in, in, in my, my profession, in my role as a pastor, and, and somewhat a public profession, if you will, there are people that have other insights and other ideas as to how things might uh, be going. And so sometimes I'm told as much. And they come into my office and very polite and caring for me, I trust. And they say, well, pastor, you're doing it wrong, right? And you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, my immediate reaction, I'm sure it's not yours, is to, you know, you should go blow that out your ear is what I want to say, <laughs> right? What are you talking about? I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been to seminary. Who are you? I mean, do we come to our doctor and say, well, doctor, I appreciate it. You're doing a fine job, but have you thought about doing it this way? Right? Why do people come and they tell the pastor what to do? And yet God then lays his truth on me and says, you are not always a wise man. Quite often you are foolish. And he might just be bringing this person into my office because I need their counsel. And I think it's probably good before we jump to our own vindication, and before we jump to justice, even as we see David doing, I trust that he has searched his own heart, it would probably be good that we not, not quickly agitate over the sins of others and at the same time remain ignorant of our own. But having done so, having sought the Lord, Lord, is there truth in this? Help me understand this. And you're finding yourself innocent in that case, it seems that David is teaching us the man of God can call for justice, right? And this is what David's doing. He's saying, oh, let, you see that verse 9, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. And so he's there calling for God to judge. Now, as I mentioned, this is startling, and I think we've kind of hit some reasons that it is, but not all of them. The other reason I think this is somewhat stunning is that when, when we, we ask for justice, right? Here's David praying for justice, so render a verdict. I think what we often are more familiar with as followers of Christ, you know, with the, with the, the fuller understanding of truth that we have that David did not, is that we, we probably are more inclined to ask for mercy and not justice. Right? And, and so we see enemies, and what do we say? We, David says, judge them, and our heart is inclined to say, God, forgive them. Right? Is that not true? We, Jesus, of course, told us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate you and leave justice into God's hand and all the rest. And so we're, I think we're somewhat uncomfortable with the, even the idea that, okay, the, the application for me based on this passage, I go home in the midst of troubling circumstances, I ask God to judge my enemies. 
right? And that's difficult for us. You're all staring at me blankly like you don't understand what I'm saying, but it's only difficult for me. On my inclination, I say, God, to be merciful, forgive them. But at, at this point, I think it's very helpful, and I talked to my, we were talking to my children about this last night, is that we distinguish that the Bible uses the, word, the, the idea of justice in a couple different ways. And C.S. Lewis is very helpful in his commentary on the Psalms. He says there is an ultimate and a final justice, right? The, you know, the day of the Lord kind of justice, which is what most Christians, I think, have in mind when we're talking about justice. And we think about justice, and we think, okay, when God comes and he writes every wrong. Well, that, that's true, of course. That the Bible teaches that over and over again. But there's also a, if you will, a limited and an earthly justice. And that's what the Jews were often praying for. Right? And so what David's praying for, when he's calling about justice, he's not talking about God's final verdict and the end all things. He's, he's talking about that earthly justice, something that, something that I think the Bible encourages us to seek for, something that we should ask for. You see, and I wonder if our preoccupation with the, kind of the, the final judgment, the day of the Lord judgment, might make us indifferent to the need of justice now. I hope that makes sense. That, in fact, it, maybe I'm the only one guilty of this, but I'm constantly saying and t- saying to you, listen, when Jesus shows up, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to fix it all, right? And that's true. But the application to, of that truth is not, therefore, be passive on issues of injustice in this life. That we should still pursue justice on a day-to-day manner. And, I, and in fact, to take it a step farther, if we are so preoccupied, now just let, let me finish the thought before you, you know, uh, shake your head at me. If we're so preoccupied with forgiveness and generosity and kindness and goodness, which we are in this life, we might be so focused on those realities, which are good and noble and we're called to, according to God, it might lead to a lack of pursuit of justice. And again, I think C.S. Lewis is helpful. Let me give you an illustration. So pretend there are two boys fighting over a pencil, okay? And uh, Lewis calls one Tommy and one Charles. Now, you have two issues when you got two boys fighting over a pencil. One issue is the issue of justice. Who does the pencil belong to? The other issue is kindness. Which boy will be kind? And so what Lewis says, what we must not do is tell Tommy to let Charles have the pencil when it belongs to Tommy because that's the nice thing to do. Right, so Lewis, is Tom, Lewis says, don't tell Tommy, parents, give Charles a pencil, even though it's not Charles, because I want you to be a nice boy. I mean, that might be a nice thing to do, but Lewis says, that's an untimely truth. I find that interesting. An untimely truth. There's a time to be kind, but don't let kindness get in the way of seeking after justice. So Lewis says, an exhortation to charity should not come as a rider to a refusal of justice. It is likely to give Tommy a lifelong conviction that charity is a sanctimonious dodge for condoning theft. In other words, we need to fight for justice on this earth. We are not to be passive on those issues just because we believe Christ is coming, just because we believe that we are forgiven sinners and we should forgive others. So we should fight for justice. We should fight for, for the justice of the unborn. No one? Amen? Anyone? Come on. We should fight for the justice of judicial reform. We should fight for justice when it comes to issues of environmental preservation as it negatively impacts disadvantaged peoples in our culture. We should fight for justice when it comes to the orphans that uh, are, are throughout nor- uh, Northern Virginia. 
We should be people who speak up for what is right, just as David prays for justice. In fact, he's confident that, that God is concerned, not just with the final events, but God is concerned with today. Look what he says in verse 10. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. Get the, look at this. And a God who feels indignation every day. You see, God, God, God is concerned with the events of this day. God is concerned with this world. This is why a couple summers ago when we were studying Leviticus, it was so helpful for me in many, many ways. But remember that maybe you've tried to block out that study, but there was a part of Leviticus, right? When we get to this, where God says, listen, as you, as you unite as my people and as you create a society, this is how you treat immigrants. And this is how you treat the widow. And this is how you treat the orphan. And God says, you know, I really hate it when you use unjust scales to scam people. We don't do that. And he says, when old, the elderly come in, you young people, you get on your feet. Because that's how we treat the elderly. And he says, when the deaf person walks by, you don't curse them. What's wrong with you, right? And the blind person comes, you don't trip them. See, God is, in other words, God is intimately concerned with the day-to-day life of his people. As David says, he, in fact, when we don't do these things, God feels indignation every day. God is angry every day with the sins and injustices in this world. And of course, that raises the question, doesn't it? If God is so concerned about justice, then why do we have the world in which we do? Why is there so much injustice in this world? And I think we could probably spend weeks talking about that, couldn't we? But let me just briefly offer two suggestions. One is that God is restraining evil throughout this world. And if he were not, it would be the law of the jungle. It would be the strong eating the weak. It would be utter anarchy and chaos. And the only reason it's not is because of God's common grace. The second thing, uh, the second answer to that question I would offer is that God will allow injustice for his own purposes. And, And as I tell my own heart, I think on a weekly basis, and I try to tell you every once in a while, in every circumstance in your life, God is probably doing 10,000 things, and you are aware of three of them, right? So we don't know what God is doing, even in allowing injustice. And all we have to do is look at the greatest of all injustices, which brought about, of course, the greatest of all goods, the judicial murder of Jesus of Nazareth, right? He came to earth, he did good, he caused the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear, and he healed the lepers, and he loved the poor and the outcast, and, and all he did was good, and there was no sin in his deeds or thoughts or his actions. There's no, nothing evil or unrighteous in him, just full of charity and love and righteousness and all the rest. And yet, what did, what did they accuse him of? Just like David is being accused here, they accused him of none other of being in league with the devil himself. He's in league with Beelzebub, they said. And then they put him on trial, and there was false witness after false witness after false witness. And even they couldn't agree. And yet, nevertheless, they still convicted him, put him to death in the most unjust act by a, by a million miles that has ever been committed. And yet, that murder of our Lord is why, is how, you and I who are guilty are saved. So the greatest injustice brought about the greatest good, that Christ was actually taking our place and bearing the wrath of God upon himself, that I might be escaped from it, that I might not be judged by this God because Christ is being judged for me. And so if God could take injustice and work it for good, couldn't he do that in your life as well? In fact, I think he probably does. And so you might be the victim of injustice. 
right now, you might be coming in your life. The question is, how do you respond? Well, I, I would encourage you to call for God's protection and claim your innocence, if that's true, and cry for justice. But I think you ought to do remember our Lord Jesus. You see how Jesus handled the injustice that he faced? Peter tells us he committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, catch this, who judges justly. So it, Jesus says, I'm going to entrust the judge. God is not in your trial. God is not distance. God will judge, and God will judge justly. What that means is vindication will come, and we work for it today, but if it doesn't come today, which quite often is the the reality, we can be confident that it will come on the day of the Lord. And when it does come, according to David in Psalm 7, it will be a fearful reality. You notice David clarifies his understanding of God's judgment. Even in his prayer to God, the song that he sings to God, he explains what he understands God will do when it comes to judgment. Consider fourthly the clarification of God's judgment. Look in verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. In other words, the judge is going to rise from his bench and he's going to arm himself. He's going to sharpen his sword and cock his bow. In other words, we see this court has teeth, doesn't it? Does, doesn't simply make judicial pronouncements. He will punish his enemies. And it's at this point when we think about God having a sword and a bow that we might be tempted, uh, us modern Westerners, to think, well, this is a little too primitive for us. Right? It's certainly primitive for most of the people in our culture that we say, if we believe in God and all, that God, of course, is there to protect the poor and needy, but launching arrows and his enemies and fiery ones at that, well, that's just a little too much. Right? And so we, we've cleaned up God's image a bit. I mean, it's 21st century. He needs a little bit of PR work, doesn't he? We're going to make God a little more contemporary, a little bit more acceptable to modern sensibilities. In fact, we made God so acceptable that we're, we feel totally safe to ignore him, don't we? And God, now God is a grandfather and floating around the clouds. And after all, what grandfather needs a sword? And God is, in our, in our culture, he's sweet and he's mild and, and, and so why don't you do him the favor of asking him into your heart today? The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. And that's, that's not a small problem, by the way. It, that, that God of the Bible does evidently, of course, metaphorically, wield a sword and fire arrows. And the God is a wrathful God. The God is a judging God. God is, as we see over and over again, the psalm, an angry God. And, and by the way, when we say, okay, I want God to be loving, not anger, you can't have one without the other. You, you, listen, it, loving people get angry, not, not in spite of their love, but precisely because they love. If you love your spouse, your wife, you will get angry with the one who harms her. If you love your children, you will get angry with the ones who abuse them. Love and wrath are, the, are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. So God, yes, is God loving? Yes, unequivocally. Is God wrathful? Yes, unequivocally. In fact, the Bible teaches that if you refuse his mercy, his arrow is aimed at you. And if that arrow is launched, it will launch you into an eternity of misery. That's what scripture teaches, like it or not. And I would say, in fact, if we forget these truths, God becomes irrelevant. 
Uh, listen, Jesus taught us we need to know we're sick in order to go to the doctor, right? We, ne- we need to know there is danger in order to seek a savior. And God, God, God is a God who, who judges, David says, and he even prays for this judgment. And, and, and this God is, is prepared to let his arrows fly just as he did 2,000 years ago when God the Father struck the very heart of God the Son so that you and I could experience not his wrath, but his love. That, listen, God, if you are not in Christ today, please hear me, God would welcome you at his table and cover you with his love. He, 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 he would do that this very moment. Right? If, listen, here, here's the option. If you, are, if you are not in Christ, God has a sword for you. If you are in Christ, God has a feast prepared for you. And even as the song we sing, right? And that, that's our story. Isn't that not where we've gone? Have we not gone? There was a day in my life, in fact, 17 uh, years full of days in which God's arrow was aimed at the heart of Stephen Karn. And if he died in his rebellion and wickedness, he would have been sent into an eternity of misery. That arrow was aimed at me. And now by his grace, I am welcome at his table. Once his enemy, as the modern song says, now seated at his table. The choice is for each of us, isn't it? Just take the language of the psalmist. You could have his sword in verse 12, or you could have his shields in verse 10. You can choose. You want a fiery arrow or a heavenly feast? You want a sharpened sword or a protecting shield? You say, well, how, how can I get the shield? How can I get the feast? He tells us, don't skip over this little phrase there in verse 12. If a man does not repent. You see it there. So how do I get it? You, you have to repent. In fact, Jesus showed up on the, on the earth. And what's the first sermon Jesus ever said? The first command he ever offered? The, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? And, and, and so we repent. We turn from the self-rule in our life, just living for what I want to do. You know what I did for 17 years before I found Christ? I did whatever I wanted. That's what I did. Repentance is bowing your knee to the Lord and saying, now you are my king, I live for you. Repent and believe it's putting your faith in Christ and the work that he has done upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. As you hear almost on a weekly basis, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's repentance. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's faith. You will be saved. That's what David's teaching us here. If you don't, this is what's coming your way. In fact, David moves on, I think, to describe what the judgment looks like. Look at what he says in verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives lives and gives birth to lies. I, I just think that's a description of Western culture. This is all our magazines and TV shows. It conceives evil and pregnant with mischief and giving birth to deceit. He continues, look at what he says in verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. And I think so much can be said of those two verses. Um, 
about the nature of judgment. So, okay, what, what, what this judgment that we're talking about, what is it? I mean, and, and is God going to, for an eternity, just kind of put my feet in acid or poke me with a hot poker forever and ever and ever? No, I don't think so. God's just going to let you have what you want. He's just going to let you go. He's just going to let, let your sin take you to its logical position, that God is going to let you fall into the hole which you have dug. Right? He says they're digging a hole. And we see this, by the way, in Romans 1. God just lets them go. James 1, he lets them go. And I love the imagery here of digging a pit. Can you imagine every, every lie you tell? There's, there's a shovel full. And every lustful thought, and there's another shovel full. And every materialistic desire, there's a, another shovel full. And every, every prideful act, and there's a, another shovel full. And God says, everybody who lives apart from me, they're just, they're digging this pit, and the wicked are going to be destroyed by their own wickedness. They're going to, they're going to fall into their own pit. And by the way, we see this happening all the time. Just turn on the news. I mean, how many politicians have to fall into the pit in which they have dug? before they actually realize, hey, maybe I should stop doing these things. I mean, just one after another. We'll secret bribe here, and we'll do this over here, and before you know it, it's all over the news. And by the way, it's just not politicians, I'm afraid. How many pastors? I mean, I I don't even pay attention anymore. There's a fall into the pit in which they have secretly been digging over the years. And of course, I'm sure some get away with it, but not ultimately. You may not fall in this life, but you will fall into the life to come when we think about this, these, these imageries, can I, I just want, I want to settle in our hearts, Christians, today. Those of you, by God's grace, believe that this arrow that was once pointed at you, this pit in which you were once digging, it's been filled by Christ. And, and, and the fact that the only reason you're not falling into that pit is not because you weren't digging the hole. It's because God's been gracious to you. And therefore, we should celebrate God's grace. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of calling for judgment, notice how David ends. We'll be brief here. And I think this is a beautiful picture here in verse 17 as we think about celebrating God's greatness, even in the midst of trouble and trial. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So here's the question. What do you do in times of anguish and trouble and injustice and all the rest? Well, there's some options, right? You could be angry, right? You could get bitter. You could be fretful and worried. You could get proud and self-righteous, right? There's many things you could do. In fact, a, a young woman once went to her mother and told her about her great troubles in her life and that she was tired of fighting and tired of struggling, her mother, in wisdom, rather than giving her a lecture, talk, took her into the kitchen and put three pots of boiling water upon the stove. Into the first pot, she placed carrots. Into the second, she placed eggs. And in the third pot, she took a couple scoops of coffee, placed it into the water. After a little while, she turned off the, the burners, and she scooped out the carrots into a bowl and the eggs also and, and poured the coffee into two cups. And she turned to her daughter and said, what do you see? And daughter, of course, says, well, I see carrots and eggs and coffee. And mother says, well, feel the, feel the carrot. And so she did, and the carrot was soft and limp. She said, well, peel the egg. She did, and, of course, revealed that the egg was now hard-boiled. And finally, her mother 
smiled and handed her a cup of coffee and said, drink. She did and enjoyed the coffee. Of course, the girl is still befuddled by all this and asked, Mom, what, what does all this mean? How does this help? Her mother explained that each of these objects faced the same adversity, boiling water, and each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, and after boiling the water, it became limp. The egg had been fragile and delicate, and after its adversity, it was now hard. The coffee was different, wasn't it? The coffee had released its fragrance and flavor into the water. So her mom looks at her daughter and says, which one are you? Right, so when, when trouble comes in your life, will you go limp like a carrot and become a fretful mess? Or, or will you become hardened like the egg, a person of bitterness? Or will you release the fragrance of your faith like the coffee? Now, of course, the, we knew the coffee was going to be the hero, didn't we? Right? <laughs> we, we all knew it wasn't going to be the carrots, right? So... <laughs> Now, I usually avoid using trite illustrations like that. But for some reason, it, it seems to have captured an image that is helpful for me. That David, in the midst of his injustice, does not become fretful and weak and limp. And David, in the midst of his trouble, does not become hard and bitter. But David, in the midst of all this trouble, says to God, I want to sing your praise. I want to give you thanks. And I wonder, my brothers and sisters, when darkness comes upon you, if you will realize there's perhaps no better time than to praise God. You, of course, should do more than praise God. Don't hear me say that, that you, should, uh, you, you should only praise God. But you, you, should, you shouldn't do less than that. And that you should, in the midst of trouble, say to God, I will praise you for what you have done, and I will praise you for what you will do, and I will praise you that even in the midst of my trouble and trial and injustice, that you are good and that you reign, that you too might be like Paul and Silas, who were beaten by the mob and feet in stockades and locked behind the prison doors in a dungeon in Philippi, and at midnight, God found them singing. They sang. David sang. Some of you, I think, come into this room this morning in the midst of trouble. Perhaps the question that God would ask you is, will you praise me in the midst of that? Will you sing? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Our Father, I think there is no other truth that can be a foundation for us in the midst of great trouble and trial. That even when we hurt so bad, we are still yours by your grace. And so we pray for our hurting brother and sister this morning, even as they seek to right the wrongs in their life. May their great hope, even their great joy, be to praise you in night's darkest hour. For the rest of us, will you prepare us for those troubling times that we too 
might respond in a way that gives you honor, that is due your name, a way that trusts you even in the midst of uncertainty. That honors you, I think, doesn't it, Father? That gives you glory. When we say, I don't know how this is going to work out, and the pain is intense, but I trust my God. You've proved yourself trustworthy by allowing your son to die for us. You've set down your bow and sheathed your sword, and it will not come upon us, for it fell on Christ. Help that to conjure forth our praise even now. And help that truth conjure faith in those who refuse to believe. Perhaps there is one here, Father, or even more, that have yet to yield their life to King Jesus. Will you let the truths of this scripture compel them to you, that they too might know your love and know that there is a feast prepared for them in the presence of their Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.